They're probably looking at late February when Joey gets back, but I won't know till he gets to Fort Bliss, Texas, to let me know, hey, Dad, I'm coming home. And, and so there may be a day where I have to be gone to go to the Will Rogers um, Airport and go to that hangar and go to some military, um, uh, what do they call that, celebration or whatever, and think I need to stand up and sing the Star Spangled Banner or something. i tell you what, when I had that PACOM thing, when they sent them off, it was a big deal because I guess the 45th had not been sent out on deployment overseas to, since 2016. And, and so anyway, so I didn't know half the time if I needed to be doing this or doing this or Star Spangled Banner or whatever, but it just, uh, it's a big deal. So we're pretty excited. I sent the same text to Karen. She was pretty excited. So she says that means we need to get busy on the bedroom to really get it cleaned up. I said, yes, we do. So, but, you know, we sang that song face-to-face -face with Christ my Savior. I'm holding a little book here. It's a, it's a book where a, a preacher named C.W. Dub West, he compiled, he compiled some poems about death. He compiled some songs like that that refers to death and resurrection. And, um, and that song's in here. When I was a hospice chaplain, lots of times if someone I knew had declined the chaplain up front, but I had to do an assessment, I didn't walk in with the Bible, but I walked in with this, and I had my little... Gideon's New Testament in my back pocket. And usually what would happen is I would go to sit down, you know, this is who I am, I'm your chaplain, you know, what's your preference, things like that. Do you ever go to church anywhere? And maybe they don't want to talk anymore about God. I'll say, well, do you mind if I sing you a hymn? Sure. They're okay with a hymn. And I would pick something like that, or I would pick something maybe like the old rugged cross that's in there. Well, what does that mean to you? I just kind of open that door. So um, in this little book, is a poem. I kind of changed the words a little bit, but I read this at my dad's funeral, or at the graveside, actually. And uh, matter of fact, one of the last things he had me sing to him at his bedside was face-to-face -face with Christ my Savior. But this little poem, I just want to read to you, and we'll get started. It's called, My Last Son is Setting Fast. It's just referring to your get ready to have your last sunset, right? My last son is setting fast. My race is nearly done. My greatest trial is all but past. My triumph has begun. I know I'm nearing that holy city of friends and kindred dear. For I brush the dews of Jordan's banks. My crossing feels so near. I've almost gained my heavenly home. My spirit loudly longs. The holy ones, behold, they come. I hear their joyful songs. Turn over my longing heart to him who bled and died for me whose blood has cleansed me from all my sins and grants me his eternal victory. And I changed a few words in there to make it more, I guess, evangelical. So I've got all my chicken scratchings, but read that at his graveside. And, and, uh, and I've read it at a lot of gravesides. Or maybe uh, as someone's getting ready to pass, sometimes I would be called in because I had good nurses that just knew the right time to, to call the chaplain to be there. But anyways, I just... Brought a memory, and then, of course, I'm thinking of Joey, uh, my GI Joey. Um, so that means I got to get his 370Z in the shop. That means I'll have to drive it to the Nissan dealer, of course, you know, and uh, get some things done. But uh, so if you find out your pastor's got a speeding ticket on the BA, it's not true. But uh, however, on 412, you might see one. But uh, anyways, but anyways, so what we're going to do tonight, it, it's question eight. 
question eight and answer eight in our catechism, our question and answer. And the question is, what is sin and what is a sinner? The answer, sin is any, any failing to keep God's laws or any breaking of God's laws. Thus, a sinner becomes a transgressor of God's standard of giving him glory. You know, all have fallen short of the glory of God, all have sinned. Romans 3, 3, 23, I think it is, or 13. But um, So we're going to talk about sin and what a sinner is. And we're going to be in Genesis 3 and we're going to be in John chapter 3. Two maybe unlikely texts you would say, well, how are we going to find out about sin and what a sinner is? Well, in Genesis 3, we're going to see sin illustrated, right? I mean, it's obviously the original sin. So we're going to see sin illustrated in Genesis chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, we're going to see that sin is remedied. In other words, there's a remedy for, for sin. So that's why we're using these two texts. And uh, when I was thinking, when I was kind of going through that part of the catechism, he had a few other things. I kind of combined three of the questions and answers together to kind of create this. And um, I know a lot of the things that we're doing on Wednesday nights is maybe what we would call elementary, uh, as I've mentioned before. But I think it's good to refresh our memories of what we know or affirm with us what we know uh, to be true about these things. Because listen, some of us have grandkids, right? Some of us have kids. Some of us have friends that might just one day look at you and say, well, I, I, heard, I heard churches think sin is wrong. What is sin? And well, you, you'll be able to give them an illustration of what sin looked like originally and how it can be remedied. I mean, uh, the Bible talks about being ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. It's in Peter. So it's implying, it, that, that text is implying that somebody's going to ask you and I some questions. It may be silly questions like, why do you baptize by immersion? You know, maybe just some weird, not, not that's a bad question, don't get me wrong. It's just there may be some off question like that versus what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Well, that'd be a great question, wouldn't it? But maybe they'll ask you that. Well, why do you only have the Lord's Supper every other month? Oh, good question. Well, you may not be able to answer that other than that's just what we voted in, but I can tell you what it stands for. You, people have all kinds of interesting questions. You know, doing hospice work, uh, had, a, had a guy one time, I showed up at his house and he was a COPD patient, but he could get around pretty good. And all around his house was all kinds of roses. I don't know what different kinds of roses there are. I guess there's homestead. There's kinds that got thorns, that ones that don't have thorns. I mean, just, he was listing all these different roses he had around his house. And he was proud of them. And it was springtime. They were blooming. And so that was the first thing he did when I got there, his house, first time ever. He showed me all that. And he said, let's come on inside. I, I got a question for you. He's always liked to stump me. He was one of the people who liked to stump you. And I found out he was a, a United Methodist. He went to United Methodist Church there in Wagner. And, and so he says, after we'd done all the long visit and had prayer and everything, he was a believer. He was born again and everything. He said, let me ask you a question, preacher. He said, he goes, and I'm going to stump you on this one, preacher. I said, okay, well, it's not the first time I've ever been stumped. He goes, how come there's so many Baptist churches? I said, we mean like denominations or just, you know, because there's so many denominations? I said, well, I don't have an answer for that, but I'll have one for you. 
I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do some research on history when they started. And, you know, Northern Baptist, Southern Baptist, independent, free will, you know, all that kind of stuff. I thought I was going to have to do that. But on my drive back to my house, when I was done with that visit, I thought, all he had was roses, but they were all different kinds of roses. Hmm. So I thought, okay. So I went back a month later, because that's how often I saw him. He said, you got an answer, preacher? I said, yeah, I got an answer. I said, and your roses answer the question. I said, what? what you, how's that? I said, well, I said, the reason there's so many Baptist churches, denominations, I said, if the gospel's central to them, they're just like those roses out there. They're all roses, but they're different kinds of roses. I said, but the central thing is they're a rose. And I said, so if these Baptist churches are preaching the gospel, I said, but yet one expresses it, you know, through the Northern Baptist, the Southern Baptist. I said, I said, so that's my answer without getting into historical, you know, because they didn't even have Google back then or anything like that. I couldn't Google it. I said, well, that's your answer. I said, that's why there's so many battles. I said, and I, and I looked at him, I said, by the way, I said, that's probably why they have so many Methodist churches too. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, there's United Methodist, there's Wesleyan Methodist, there's, there's uh, uh, Free Methodist. I said, you know, come on now. I said, you've been there, done that. He goes, well, that's true, preacher. You know, but sometimes people ask questions and sometimes there's an illustration out there and that's what I used was an illustration. I didn't have a Bible answer for that, you know. Well, since John the Baptist, you can go that route. But anyways, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to find out in Genesis 3 that that original sin or when sin originated. <clears throat> I don't like to use that term because it's more of a Catholic term, but it is when sin originated. We're going to see it illustrated in Genesis 3. In verse 1 through 7, I want you to see that the temptation, the temptation leads man into separation. I want you to look at verse 1 through 7 with me of Genesis chapter 3. I'll read those verses myself. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he, and he said to the woman, that is the serpent, said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You should not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You should not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. She kind of added to God's command, didn't she? Yeah. He didn't say don't touch it. He just said don't eat it. But maybe she did that to make sure she don't eat it. Well, then tell yourself don't touch it. Maybe that was her concept, but that's what she said. Verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows in that day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you, here's the lie, you will be like God knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also, which implies, by the way, he was there the whole time, she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. 
this temptation led man or mankind into the separation, the separation between them and God. It led them into sin. It led them into disobedience. How did all that develop there in verse 1 through 7? Well, Satan, I believe the first thing he did is he went, here was Eve, and Adam was somewhere in the, in the vicinity. And the first thing he did is he just stood between the man and the woman and caused division. He divided the two. And he only spoke to the woman the whole time. Okay? He caused division. Then when he got there, the first thing he did, he cast doubt on what God had said. Because he said there, <coughs> has God indeed said? In other words, did he really say this? You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So he kind of cast doubt and court already distorted what God had really said. He just said, just don't go to this one tree. Do not eat of it. You eat of this one tree, you'll die. Everything else, you can eat all you want to. So the first thing he did is he cast doubt and distorted what God had said. And then once he got into the, the, the major part of the distortion, she said, well, we're not even supposed to touch it or we'll die. And he said, look, you won't die. That was the lie. You won't die and you'll become like God. Now, they did become like God in the sense that they did discover good and evil, but they did die. They're going to die, right? They're going to die. So that was the lie from the beginning. The lie from the beginning was is that if you do what you want to do, if you disobey God, you will not die. You will not. There'll be no consequence. So he caused a vision. He cast doubt. He communicated distortion of what God had really said. What was the woman doing? Well, first of all, you can't blame her a lot. I mean, the serpent came up there. He was one of the beasts of the field. But she entertained. She entertained a dialogue. She entertained the dialogue of the lie, and then she fell into sin. What did the man do in this temptation, this sin being illustrated? What did he do? Well, he remained present during the whole time. He remained silent during the whole time, and then he participated in it. So when we see this first recorded sinful act, that's the dynamics. And listen, every time you and I cross that line to either fail to do what God has told us to do, or we purposely break what God has told us to do, whether we, whether we call it the sin of omission or the sin of commission, you know, whether we fail to do something or we do something we shouldn't do, every time that happens, there's a battle going off in the mind. And we're having a dialogue with our own flesh most of the time because that, that's why Paul says, you know, you renew your mind. You renew your mind with the Word of God so it will line up in your, and you're beating your flesh. Because the Spirit's the only thing that's been justified. My mind is still corrupt. My body's definitely corrupt because it's decaying every day. I know it's decaying every day because every day I get up and I go, oh, and it pops and I stretch. And it's decaying. It's, it's corroding. It's going to die. Uh, I, some of my nurses didn't like it sometimes when I said, well, I'm going to die of something. Don't talk like that, Chaplain Steve. I said, well, I am. I'm going to die of something. I said, I'm not, not saying I have a death wish, but I'm going to die of something. You know, it's not like I've... Like I told you, like I told you before, I said I used to think I was ten foot tall and bulletproof. Now I'm just ten foot tall. I know I'm not bulletproof anymore, 
And someday I'll realize I'm not 10 feet tall either. But I'm not quite there yet. And so when we see the battle that goes on in our minds, it's because we have a tendency to divide what we know is right and what we know is wrong. What God has said, we, we divide. We, we can't, in essence, as we think our way through and, 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 and sin is planted and, and we think about it, then it's birthed. I believe uh, James talks about that. And so we do the same thing. It's just a different, different place, different scenario. And our flesh is very deceptive. Uh, our brain can justify a lot of things. Uh, when I leave here tonight, it's not as easy for me to see at night. Now, even though I wear glasses and, and I'm getting on 412 and this person just doesn't want to pull over, well, I might be tempted to say, one of these, you know, instead of just say, hey, Lord, just take care of me, you know. It's real easy. Our flesh can justify a lot of stuff. And that's ultimately what she did. She listened to her flesh. It looks good. It smells good. You see what I'm saying? She was going by her sensual nature, her fleshly nature, instead of what did God say. And she even added that, don't touch it. Because I think in her mind, I'm just trying to read Eve's mind, which I can't do. Maybe she thought, well, if I'm not supposed to eat it or I'll die, if I don't even touch it, there's no way I'll ever eat it. She just put maybe that little extra oomph in there. I don't know why she said that. Because all God said is, don't eat of it or you'll die. He didn't say you couldn't go there and say, well, that looks good. God did a good job. He didn't say you couldn't do that. He just said, don't eat or you'll die. But she added that. But she entertained that dialogue like we all do. That dialogue of our senses, the dialogue of our intellect that always deceives us always leads us into disobedience. That's why Romans 12, we've got to renew our mind with the Word of God so we can be conformed to the likeness of Christ, to, to do what is right. That's why it's important, because this is the battlefield, okay? This is the battlefield, and this is, uh, this, is uh, this old flesh here. Trust me, it's deceptive. Just because something feels good, don't make it right, right? Just because it feels good, don't make it right. And so that was the temptation that led into to separation. Then in verse 18 through 21, there was the transgression, their, their transgression that they did, they, they disobeyed God. That led man ultimately, by the grace of God, to a reconciliation, to a reconciliation. So I guess the only good news is, which we know is good news, right? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. That's the good news, right? If all we tell people the good news is, is God's got eternal life for you and he loves you, we're only telling them half the truth because they don't even realize they need to be lost because they don't know they've sinned. So, so the good news is, is that right there in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to see the good news of reconciliation unfold, begin to be revealed that, that gospel narrative that goes from Genesis to, to Revelation, it's going to be start right there. It's going to start unfolding. And, of course, by the time we get to John chapter 3, it's totally revealed, and the full revelation of God's redemptive story is there. So look at verse 8 through 21 with me, how the transgression that they did commit, disobeying God, 
that also led man into the idea of reconciliation, being reconciled with God. Look at verse 8 through 21 with me. After they made their coverings with their fig leaves because they realized they were naked, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Remember, they used to walk with God in the cool of the day. Remember that? They had that innocent state. They had that perfect state. Well, they heard God walking in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves. When they heard that, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, Lord, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat, not eat and touch or anything, just no, don't eat? Then the man said, typical man, The woman whom you gave to me, gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And of course, this reminds me of when I was a kid watching Flip Wilson, right? The devil made me do it. Then, then uh, as, 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 sorry, the woman whom you gave me, all right. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any, than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow at, and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. And that doesn't mean in a good way. In other words, she'll always want to usurp her husband, okay, by nature, by simple nature. And, she, and he shall rule over you. Well, the thing is, his natural tendency will be to lord over her, okay, which is not good either. Then, verse 17, then, then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Remember, he didn't say touch, right? Just don't eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat, it, eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face or your brow, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics. You know, he shed blood, remember? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. There, there's the beginning of the unfolding of the gospel story there. He made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. And it goes on. And, of course, he kicks them out of the garden forever so they don't eat of another tree and then be in that state forever. You know, eat of it again. And so 
we saw that the temptation led to their separation. But that actual transgression, by the grace of God, right, leads to their reconciliation. What do we see in the, tra in the, in the reconciliation? We saw the separation. There was division, doubt, distortion, entertaining dialogue with lies, falling into sin. He was present. He was silent. He participated. She blames the devil. He blames her. Ultimately, you know what they're doing? They're blaming God. Because the first thing God did, he pursued the man and woman. Did you know that? It said God was walking in the cool of the day, right? He was pursuing them. And as he pursued them, he says, where are you? Don't you think God knew where they were? Then why did God say, where are you? For their benefit. For their benefit. Where are you? Then once he found out where they were, he says, what have you done? Don't you think God knew what they had done? Yeah. But for their benefit, he said, what have you done? So God pursued man and pursued woman. And guess what? Just as everybody falls into that nature of corrupted sin from birth on, God is still pursuing man. When God calls a man or woman to him, he calls them out. Where are you? I'm standing here in my sin. What have you done? I've sinned against you. When God pursues somebody, it's effective. Uh, the theologians call that the effectual call, that effectual draw. When God pursues man and woman, it brings about an effect. And so as God pursued the man and the woman, the man blamed the woman. Ultimately, the woman that you gave me, because he's basically blaming God, the woman you gave me. And the woman blamed the devil whom God made. So ultimately, they're all blaming God. But this is what God did. He pursued them. And then he covered their nakedness through the shedding of blood. And as he shed the blood to cover their nakedness, he also made a promise during all this that one would come out of the woman's seed. That's the beginning prophecy. That's the beginning unfolding of the revelation of the gospel. One will come through the seed of the woman who will bruise the head of the snake and it will bruise his heel. My grandmother... My grandma Holstein, there in Marshfield, Missouri, they lived about a quarter mile from the mailbox up a hill. You know, one of them, uh, not limestone, but actually flintstone-type driveways, you know, out in the middle of the country. And me and my cousin, when we would spend summers up there, two weeks at a time from age 10 to maybe 15 until we could start working during the summer or during the year, school year, we would spend two weeks a year up there, usually during July, the hottest time to be in Missouri or Oklahoma and of course there was a Webster County Fair you know there's pretty girls at the county fair and we got to chase grease pigs and all that stuff but one of the things that grandma had us do our chore along with whatever grandpa had left us to do in the barn that day was to go get the mail and to go get the mail like I said it's a quarter mile down the road well grandma around that part of that country there's a lot of a lot of copperheads and and snakes like that so she's always telling us, be careful around them copperheads. Well, me and Rick never saw a copperhead because when she said, go get the mail, we jumped off that porch and ran, you know, a quarter mile and ran a quarter mile back. When she got the mail, she's walking. 
But Grandma McCary Kane, similar to what, what Brother Ron's got back there, is a little bit smaller. And this is what Grandma would do. If she saw a copperhead, she'd stand there and beat its head. She was good at that. She, uh, me and Rick saw dead snakes all over the place, copperheads. She killed those snakes by crushing their skull. And that's what he's saying. There's one coming. It's going to crush the skull of that, that serpent. It'll bruise his heel too. He'll have to die too. But there's one coming. And it will destroy Satan. And it will destroy the power of sin. So in Genesis chapter 3, when we talk about how sin is either a failing to do what God has told you to do or a outright breaking of what God has told you to do, sin of omission or commission, that's what sin is. And therefore, the sinner becomes a transgressor. And we saw it illustrated right there in Genesis chapter 3 uh, as sin originates in mankind. And of course, if we were to go to to Romans chapter 5, which we're not going to, it talks about how through one man came sin, and through another man came what? Came cleansing, came salvation. And of course, you talk about the first Adam and the second Adam, as, he, as Paul calls it. And so we could talk about that. But what we're going to do is now we're going to jump to John chapter 3. We've seen sin illustrated. Now we're going to see sin remedied. In other words, the full revelation of how did that one come to crush the head? And, and who is that one that came? It's a fuller revelation there in John chapter 3. And I'll turn there myself. And I always like, whenever I, whenever I share John 3.16 with somebody, I always like to read them all the way to, chapter, to verse 21. Because it gives them the full context. Look at... John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 first, how sin is remedied. In 16 and 17, we see God's sovereign action. God's sovereign action. Look at verse 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. So in verse 16 and 17, we just don't see the sovereign act that God loved the world. It, it explains totally what it means by how God actively loved the world. He sent his son into the world to save them, not to condemn them. How many times have you been in an environment where someone knows that you're a, you're a Christian and they might have the attitude, well, who do you think you are? You know, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. and Because all it is is they're being convicted of their sin probably because you're doing the right thing and they'd rather do the wrong thing. It's something that simple. And when I first became a Christian, that was pretty common in the, in the shops that I worked at because they knew who I was and they saw me change. And I guess they, they thought I was trying to... trying to, I guess, show off or something. I was like, wow, I'm just trying to do the right thing. You know, maybe just like, for instance, when I worked at a shop at that time, they gave production levels. You know, you're supposed to do, I don't know, 60 pieces of angle iron uh, per hour. And so that's giving you a minute to do 60, 36-inch long angle, and then the Miva iron worker cuts it, and you set it up there on a stack. I mean, that's a minute of angle, right? 
Well, sometimes I might do a hundred of those angles in an hour. Not that I clocked in a hundred in an hour because how it works in a shop like that. If I was to clock in that I did a hundred in 60 minutes and clocked in like that, well, you know what? They're going to start changing the standard, okay? But some of the guys didn't understand why all of a sudden my production level went from about 80% to 100%. Now, my, my boss understood because he called me in the office one day and said, what in the world's happened to you? That's why I'm glad you asked. And I told him about Jesus. But the guys out in the shop that knew I came to Jesus, they thought I was being a brown nose. I was showing off. I said, no, I'm just happy I have a job. I said, I'm, I'm happy to work now. I'm, I, I've got a purpose I, and I want to make my employer happy. But it was kind of a union shop, and there was an us and them attitude that was there. And so when we do actions like that, people think we're trying to outdo them. We're just trying to do the right thing. Well, if people don't realize that God actively loved them to, to save them, that they need to be saved from something, all they know is God loves them. That's all I knew as a kid. Because all they ever told me was John 3, 16. Now, I could have looked it up myself. Don't get me wrong. I'm not blaming the preacher. I was old enough to read. I just didn't. But wouldn't it have been nice at age seven and a half when the preacher said, God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. And the reason he died for you is because you're a sinner. You're condemned. And he came to save you. Then I would have had the full story. You see what I'm saying? The full gospel at least as a Baptist would know it. And so we see God's sovereign action. God gave the sacrifice. God sent the Savior. People have to know what they're being saved from. They need to know how God loved them. It wasn't just a feeling. It was an action. That's God's sovereign action in John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Then in verse 18 through 19, man's simple problem. All of a sudden, it gets a little bit deeper as to what sin looks like. Oh, what do you mean I'm condemned? Well, look at verse 7, 18 and 19. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. I mean, they're in a state of condemnation, right? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Verse 19. And this is the condemnation that the light, or Jesus, has come into the world. What? To save us, right? And man loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Wouldn't it be nice to know if somebody was presenting the gospel to you today, they not only gave you a little hope to say, hey, God loves you. He loves you, David. Okay, thank you, Steve. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die because he died for your sins. Oh, what do you mean sins? Well, we're all condemned. We're in a condemned state. We, we live in a sinful state. And we're already there, and unless we believe in him, we're always condemned. Oh, okay. So that's man's simple problem, God's sovereign action, man's simple problem. Look at man's simple response. Look at verse 20 through 21. And then I would turn to David and say, David, there's two responses. You can either reject that, or you can come to Christ. Look at verse 20 and 21. 
for everyone practicing evil, that would be David at that moment, who loves the darkness rather than light, and he's realizing, oh, okay, God's revealing to him. For everyone who practices evil hates the light. Well, not only do they love the darkness, they hate the light. Now David's getting a little bit fuller understanding what it means to be a sinner. You're not just someone that's always messing up. You're someone that loves messing up. And you, you're someone who hates God correcting you. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Not only does he hate the light, I don't want the light. Oh, that's, that's, that's a deeper picture of what con being condemned means. I don't want the light. And he does, he does that because lest his deeds be exposed. David doesn't want to be seen as a sinner. That's his nature. Uh, David would say, well, everybody sins. My mom sins. My dad sins. My brother, my wife sins. I'm okay. I'm a good guy. I work at Walmart. I've been there, what, 30 plus years? And I'm a good guy. I take care of my family. Well, until we tell him the truth that he's in a condemned state because he loves sin. He, he doesn't want to be exposed before God. He really hates God by his nature. Then verse 21, this is the other response. But, David, but he who does the truth comes to the light. You remember in the Genesis, the original lie, right? Well, now you've got to come to the truth instead of believing the lie. But, David, he who comes to the truth... What's the truth, Steve? That you're a sinner and that God sent his son to save you because you're condemned already and your condemnation is that you love your sin. You don't want God. But if you'll come to the truth and come to the light, Jesus, that your deeds may be clearly seen, that they were done in God. In other words, you, you've done them before God. You're guilty. If you'll come to the light, if you'll come to the truth and say, I have sinned. And the light's the only one I can come to. He can be saved. We see God's sovereign action. We see man's simple problem. We see the simple response. You can either continue to practice your evil, love your darkness, and hide from God and run from God, or you can start practicing the truth and come to the light and be exposed to God in your nakedness and be made righteous. So in John chapter 3, verse 16 through 21, we go from sin being illustrated, even though that sin led to reconciliation for them, from our sin being remedied through the light, through the truth, through the truth, the way in the life, as we would say, right? And so as we think about what sin is and what is the sinner, sin is anything we do that either fails to obey God or chooses to just break the laws of God. Therefore, it makes us a transgressor. We have failed and fallen short of the glory of God. We're a failing transgressor when it comes to the glory of God. That's what we are. That's what a sinner is, and that's what sin is. That's important to know. Now, I'm not saying I would have got saved at age seven and a half, had the preacher explain it to me clearly. It is what it is, right? I walked forward. I said some prayer. I got baptized that night because that's what the Christian church did. They baptized me that night. Now, I do remember this, though. For the next 10 weeks on a Saturday, my dad took me down there, and I sat in the office with my pastor, and we talked about a lot of things 
that when I did get saved and grabbed a survival kit, I'm like, oh, I've learned that before. So whatever he used was similar. So he was still following up with me. He wasn't just saying, okay, you know, you know, dunk him and bring him on. He was discipling me. But thank God that was done. That Thank God my parents allowed me to respond to that, whatever I thought I needed to do, because that way when I was 21, I knew exactly what I had to do. I knew exactly what I was doing because God had opened my eyes to whatever I'd been told in the past. And thank God seeds were just poured out on my life. I remember one time being about four years old. That would have been 1966, maybe five years old, 67. But in Oklahoma, or at least in Tulsa, they, they passed the BYOL, you know, bring your own liquor into the bar, right? And we're driving past a bar, and I, I, I could read letters. And I said, Mama, what's BYOL? My mama goes, Robert, but to my dad's heels, well, calm down, Carol. It says, bring your own liquor, son. That's what it means. He said, they passed a law, and he explained it to me. I said, well, mama, I said, someday I'm going to close every one of them bars down. And all I remember is when I got saved that night, because I was, I was a functioning drunk, Bruce McCray looked at me and says, he says, you just about closed them all down, didn't you? I said, yeah, I did. Yeah. Last call for alcohol. I said, but I got saved, Bruce, you know. And I, your mama didn't realize I was being prophetic. But, uh, but you know, you, you ask a lot of things when you're a kid. And, and I know that I'm probably more open with my kids than other people are. But listen, I believe in being real open with my kids. My kids know all of my testimony. I mean, like, as they got older, a little bit more detail. But then they didn't know everything as much as they need to know anyways in detail. And it's nothing I'm, nothing I'm, I'm, I'm proud of. But I have no problem sharing where I've been. Because that tells them that when I'm telling them, you love the darkness, you hate the light, they're going to say, yeah, okay. yeah." I, I was just kind of an extreme case. That's all it was. Me and Bruce both were kind of an extreme case. And I know some people are going to be more of a, an Apostle Paul conversion versus a Peter. Follow me. Okay. And follow him. My daughter was only five and a half when we were camping in the Audubon State Park in the back seat of a town car with the windows down and a little campfire. And she said, Daddy, why can't I get baptized? I said, that's a good question. And I explained the gospel to her. And I said, you got to do that. And then I explained to her what baptism was. And later on, within a couple of weeks, she came forth. said, I want to get saved. And then that next week, we baptized in a little church, Advanced Baptist Church. Josh came forward at one of our churches about that same age, a church that I was just a member at, but nothing changed. But yet when he called me on a midnight after Palm Sunday coming to church with us, that he hadn't been to church since he went to school at NSU, he calls me at midnight and says, Dad, crying, if I came home, would you stay up? I yeah, what happened? I'll be home. Like, what happened, Josh? And I'm thinking someone beat my son up at NSU. He comes home and says, Dad, I've had all this doubt all my life. And he said, the preacher today said, if you're doubting something, that means you just don't know what God wants you to do. But if you know what to do, you're not doubting, you're disobeying God. He said, I went to my dorm room, and I began to read that Bible that you gave me, and you preached to me all those years, and I realized I just had not surrendered my life to Jesus Christ and radically saved. Joey, nine and a half years of age, we're at a revival at our church where members at. And he just wanted to go to the altar and pray several nights in a row. So we, I prayed with him, whatever he was drugging with. We get home and he says, Daddy, 
He said, I think I need to get saved. I said, well, let's get busy. And we, we went to the scripture and I led him to the Lord. And then he was baptized. So I believe in being honest with my kids, just like I try to be pretty transparent with you. Trust me, I'm even more transparent with my kids, my wife, my friends. But listen, sin is a problem. Sin brings death. Sin was illustrated to us, and sin was remedied for us through Jesus Christ. So I'm going to close with this, and then we'll have prayer requests. If sin or since sin really is a problem, then nobody's perfect because we're all sinners. It says in Romans chapter 5, it's passed down to all of us through Adam. But the problem with sin has been remedied because one has come. One has been sent. One has come. One has accomplished the work. And until we tell them that, that that is the way out, that he is the way out, because otherwise they are bound to sin. They, they truly, whether they would admit or not, they love their sin. They hate God by nature. They may have a love for God intellectually like I did, because I grew up in the church, so I didn't have an intellectual hate for God. But everything I was doing was running from God because I didn't love God. My flesh did not love God. I knew about him. Until they know that, they can't be saved. They must get the full counsel of the gospel, the full counsel of God's word. Now, I'm going to open the floor for...